Welcome back to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Centre for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. I'm Beth. And I'm Ava. And on Minds Matter, we explore research from neuroscience to psychology while talking about our own personal experiences. And this week on the podcast, I spoke to Dr. Emma Templeton, and she is a postdoctoral fellow in psychological and brain sciences at Dartmouth. And she studies what makes conversation good. So we spoke about how sometimes we feel connected to people in conversation, how sometimes we feel disconnected, how we can maybe measure and predict whether someone's feeling connected or disconnected. We also spoke about laughter and conversation, which of course I was very interested in. So we hope you guys enjoy. My name is Emma Templeton. I am a postdoctoral fellow at Dartmouth um, in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences. I work with Talia Wheatley and Luke Chang, and I recently finished my dissertation work and my PhD just this past June. The question that motivates all of my work is what makes conversation good, which is maybe not the most scientific question in the world, but it's the one that really grounds a lot of the work that I do and captures the essence of what I want to learn about, which is really that feeling of having a great conversation with someone and walking away and just being so excited. I think it's such a magical feeling and I love when you stumble into these really great conversations. And all of my work tries to figure out, well, what happens in these conversations when they go really well? And also what happens when they don't go as well? So cool. So why would it be important to study conversation? I mean, it's definitely something like what you just explained we all can relate to but why would it be important to know the mechanisms of this and then how do you even study that? Yeah great question. So I'm a social psychologist and I think conversation is the most ubiquitous social behavior we engage in. We have conversations all the time with lots of people and it's the way that we form relationships, how we maintain relationships, navigate our social networks. It's just a really important process that unfolds in our daily lives. And it turns out past research really underscores the importance that conversation and social connection has on our health. So when people don't have conversations, they can slip into loneliness. Social isolation is a risk factor for early mortality, which is actually on par with dangers of smoking and obesity. So it can be really dangerous to be in a situation where you're not having regular conversations with people. And other work in social psychology has instructed people to have more conversations and talk to more people. And in these experiments where people are instructed to talk to people more, people reliably report feeling happier. And so it's just an important part of our lives that's protective against certain mental and physical health outcomes. It's how we navigate our world and it's a source of happiness as well. That's so interesting because I know about the loneliness thing, but I didn't think that that was directly linked to conversation. Do you know what it is about the conversation that helps against all these things, like these risk factors? Yeah, it's a good point. So these studies will ask people um, how lonely they feel. You can talk to lots of people in your daily life and still walk away feeling very lonely. So these are two different sources of loneliness that can be different than just the number of interactions that you have in your daily life. But certainly, and maybe I'm making some some leap there that to me feels like not that big of a leap, like the way that we connect with other people is through conversation. It's hard to imagine doing that in other ways. I guess we can maybe form parasocial relationships with people on television or something like that, but really getting the feedback and interaction from another mind, I think is the piece that's really protective against a lot of these health outcomes. I think making the link between how many interactions people have per day, the kinds of interactions, the depth of those interactions, how many interaction partners people have, these are all components that could feed into how lonely people feel, and they might not always be perfectly aligned with each other. So it might be about how people are feeling, but I think the way people are conversing with other people the frequency and the types of conversations all feed into this. Yeah, that, that's really cool. So one of your studies looked at why people click in conversations. 
And I think because we all have that experience where you meet someone and you have that feeling of, well, yeah, what we call you just click easily. So in this study, you used a round robin method. Can you explain how you use that to study how we feel connected in conversations and what that study found? Sure. So the way that we designed this study, and this was all in collaboration with my PhD advisors, again, Talia Wheatley and Luke Chang, we thought it was really important to study conversation in a way that it naturally unfolds in our daily lives. And so even though we were doing this in the lab, we came from the point of view of really wanting to make it feel like a conversation that you maybe would have at a coffee shop with someone else. So the the study that we ran was actually really simple. We just brought pairs of people into the lab. We had them sit across from each other in these kind of cafe style tables. And we just said, okay, talk to each other. Um, And then we left the room. We said, you can talk about whatever you want. We'll come back and get you after 10 minutes. And there was no task here. So our participants could do whatever they wanted. And they had 10 minutes to just have a conversation. There was no clock or anything on the wall. So they weren't like counting it down in any way. Just after 10 minutes had passed, we walked in and said, okay, your conversation is over. And we structured the data collection in what's called a round robin design. So every round of data that we collected had 11 participants and every participant had 10 different conversations. So one with the 10 other members of the round robin. And we didn't make everyone do this in one day. That would be very exhausting and a scheduling nightmare, to be honest. So this was over the course of a term. People kept returning to the lab to have a total of 10 conversations. And we collected a bunch of these round robins, but every person came in and had 10 different conversations with 10 different people. And what's nice is this setup allows us to look at how a single person behaves in kind of a similar situation with 10 different conversation partners. And it's a really fun way to structure data collection that lets you look at a bunch of different levels of analysis, which was important to us. And then after each dyad, so a group of two people had their 10-minute conversation, we came in and we said, your conversation is over, and we separated them into different rooms. And then their tasks were to first fill out a survey, which just asked them a bunch of questions, like how much did you enjoy that conversation? How much did you like the person that you were talking to? really simple survey. And then we had them do this task that they didn't like so much, which is where we made them watch the video recording of the 10 minute conversation that they just had. And their task there was to continuously rate how connected they were feeling to the other person. So there was a slider bar on the screen. It said, how connected were you feeling at this moment? And as they're watching the conversation, they're able to move the slider bar to indicate that they were feeling more or less connected as time went on. Then they would come back again, they would meet another person, they would again have a 10 minute conversation, they'd separate and they would do these two tasks. And then what we were really interested in was what's happening in the conversation that can meaningfully predict participants' own reports of how much they enjoyed that conversation and how connected they felt. So this was really our index of clicking. So we asked the participants to tell us, like, you know this feeling, we all know this feeling. How much did you like talking to this person? How connected did you feel? And then we were uh, looking at behavior in the videos of the conversations that we recorded to try and link up what was happening during the conversation and how people were feeling. Did you find if someone felt connected, so if they were on the sliding scale, I feel connected to that person, did that match up with how the other person was feeling? <laughs> really good question. So you can imagine, and maybe this is where your head is going. So everyone's doing this separately, but for every conversation, you get both perspectives of how connected someone is feeling. And so you can make these really cool visualizations where you have what's called a time series. So the up and downs of how one person is feeling in terms of connection over the entire 10 minutes. And you can lay on top of that their partner's impressions of how connected they are feeling. And you do see lovely examples and kind of like scarily similar examples where people are really going up at the exact same times, coming down at the exact same times. They're really in lockstep and in total agreement about when they're feeling connected and when they're feeling disconnected. 
So if you were to do a correlation between those two time series, the value would be quite high. And then you can see really sad examples where the opposite is true. Like as one person is rising in connection, their partner is reporting a total plummet in connection. And there, if you were to correlate the two time series, you would get a quite low value. And so this is one interesting data point that comes out of this data collection, which is how in sync were two people in terms of how connected they were feeling. And a high correlation doesn't mean they were both feeling connected. It just means they agreed on the moments of disconnection and the moments of connection. So you can look both at how in sync are we and also are we feeling connected overall or are we feeling disconnected overall? And then you can look at these really interesting moments where there's the disagreement. And you can look and see well, what's going on there. Uh, why is one person reporting high connection one person is reporting low connection? And I used to play this fun game when I first started collecting these data in lab meetings where I would pull out video clips of participants who were reporting vastly different levels of connection. And I would play them and I would ask, you know one person's feeling connected and one person's feeling disconnected. Can you figure out who it is? And I think that's a really interesting question because it's not always obvious. And it explains why you can have these mismatches. It's not like one person is just being totally naive and not picking up on what the other person is feeling. In these 10-minute, very polite interactions, you can totally get away with acting very pleasant and then not really letting on that you're feeling a bit disconnected and you can just get through the 10 minutes and it's totally fine. So these moments I think are really interesting and people might be more or less attuned to pick up on these asymmetries as observers or even as participants themselves. And did you find any particular behavior or something in the moments where both people felt connected? Was there anything that you could predict like, oh, if people are doing this or expressing these kind of things, they then will both feel connected and in sync, I guess? Yeah. So we collected the data set with the intention of looking at many, many, many different conversation behaviors, which is why we started with this really unconstrained natural task. And the goal was really to build up a database of lots of real conversations. So hundreds and hundreds of conversations between um, pairs of people. And the first thing we ended up observing was the importance of something called gap length in conversation. So gap length, basically just means how quickly do people respond to each other. And it's the amount of time in between when I finish my turn, when you start speaking your own turn and responding to me. And so what we did in these conversations is we got really precise transcripts of all the conversations. And for every speech turn, we knew exactly the start timestamp of when someone started speaking and the end timestamp of when they ended that turn. And so to compute the gap length in between two turns, you can take the start timestamp from one and subtract the end timestamp from the other. And these timestamps are all at millisecond level precision because we know from previous work that we're able to respond quite quickly to each other in conversation. So previous work has found around 200 or 250 milliseconds is on average how quickly we respond to each other in conversation. And you can contrast that to, maybe you don't know how to think of 200 milliseconds, which is understandable. So if I were to just hold up a picture of an apple and ask you, what is this? You would say apple. And that would take about 600 milliseconds. So to put that in context. Wow. Yeah, it's really impressive. So in conversation, we can respond on average about three times as fast as identifying an object. And you might be wondering, like, how is that possible? And the, the reason is because our brains are really good at predicting. And when someone is speaking, we're able to listen to what they're saying and start to anticipate where they're going. And then we can start planning our own response in advance. It's not like someone finishes a turn, we think about it, think about what we wanna say, and then respond. We're doing all of this simultaneously at once. We're figuring, we're processing what someone is saying anticipating what they're going to say next, starting our planning our response, figuring out when they're going to stop and when we're going to go in. So it's this really impressively coordinated act that we do all of the time that feels very effortless. And the short gap lengths that we're able to achieve just highlights 
the level of prediction that's going in facilitating these fast gap lengths. And so the question that we had was, okay, we know from previous work that people are able to make these really fast responses in conversation because prediction helps us. Is it the case that people who are feeling more connected with each other, maybe they have a better sense of the mind of the other person, which is going to make that prediction that much easier? So if I'm really connecting with you, if I really feel like we're on the same page or we're sharing a mental model, there are all these ways that you can think about it. If we're clicking, then it's going to be easier for me to understand where you're coming from, where you're going, and I'm going to be excited to go along with you. So all of these things are going to facilitate these faster response times was the idea. So what we did is for every conversation, we computed all of the gap lengths between all of the turns. And then for every conversation, we can look at the distribution of all of their gap lengths. And we can just ask, well, what's the average gap length in this particular conversation? And they vary in interesting ways from conversation to conversation. And then we can relate those values with what participants told us about how connected they were feeling and how much they enjoyed that conversation. And what we found, which was really cool, is that conversations that had shorter gap lengths on average were also rated as more enjoyable and more connected, feeding into this idea that the ease of prediction is helped when we're really feeling connected with someone else. That's really cool. We've also had Kelsey on the podcast and we were talking about this kind of idea about prediction error. And is it when you're spending time with a friend or something and it feels really at ease because there's just, just really low prediction error because you know them really well and that's where that feeling comes from. It kind of sounds like a similar kind of idea. So then another finding that you've had is that gap length, if it's longer between friends, then you do feel connected. Is that right? Yeah. So it's interesting that you bring up the low prediction error in friends idea. I think really yeah. feeds into another paper that we worked on, which is specifically about long gaps in conversation. So maybe I should first say for this first paper that was really about short gaps, we first found this relationship that just existed in the data between average gap length in conversation and how connected people were feeling. We then followed that up with a more traditional experimental study where we took audio clips of conversations that we recorded and then we manipulated the gap lengths between them. So in a control condition, we kept them exactly the same. In a short gap condition, we shortened the gaps between the turns. And in a long gap condition, we lengthened the gaps between the turns. And here we were really interested in, okay, there's this relationship here, but is this information on its own enough to cue people in on how connected people are feeling? So we created three different versions of um, these different conversations. And then we had a different group of participants listen to these conversations. And their task was just to say, okay, you listen to that conversation. How connected do you think those two people are to each other? How much do you think they enjoyed this conversation? And in line with how we were thinking, we found that when participants were listening to conversations where gaps were manipulated as being shorter, they reported them as more enjoyable and more connected than the exact same conversations where the gaps were manipulated as being longer. And so this is nice experimental evidence suggesting that gaps on their own are a sufficient signal of connection that even eavesdroppers, you can imagine, will pick up on and will use as information when trying to figure out how connected people are feeling. So just wanted to make sure to make it clear that we also followed up with an experimental study. And I think in the case of short gaps, and thinking in terms of the importance of prediction, it's quite clear that when people are able to achieve a short gap, it's likely because they're doing that via reducing some sort of prediction error or being good at anticipating where someone is going or maybe are just excited to jump in or something like that. In a long gap, I think you can think of a long gap as, well, maybe that's just evidence of failed prediction. So we were really interested in well, what happens when gaps get really long in conversation. And so we collected a data set also of conversations between friends, close friends, and we compared this to our round robin data set where people were mostly strangers. And we just looked and first said, okay, well, how many instances of long gaps happen in these conversations to begin with? And 
For the purpose of the paper, we defined a long gap as being two seconds or longer, which in the world of conversation is like an eternity. If you're waiting for someone, a two seconds of silence can feel like forever. So we looked and just said, okay, how often do these things happen? And what we found, which was initially surprising, was that these long gaps are actually way more frequent in conversations between friends. And you might be thinking, oh, friends should be on the same wavelength more. They should have better prediction. Things should be faster always, even faster than, than strangers. But you can also think in a slightly different way. And the way that I thought about these results when I first saw them is, for me, a really important hallmark of friendship, in particular when I've made a new friend or something like that, is that moment when you can sit in silence and not feel like scared or awkward. And I think that's always amazing when that happens, when you realize, oh, I, it was silent for a while and I didn't feel the pressure to jump in and say anything. And so we had this idea that maybe friendship affords you this greater flexibility in these dynamics and having a long gap is not some indictment of connection. It instead can be this opportunity to do all sorts of other things like have deep reflection or engage in high quality listening or just delight in each other's company or maybe it's totally meaningless, but it's not stressful in any way. And so... What's nice is we looked back at those continuous connection measures that we talked about earlier, where we have in both the friends and the strangers, they watched their 10-minute conversation and rated how connected they were feeling over time. So we could go back in. We know exactly when the long gaps are happening. We have all of those timestamps. And we can zoom in on every time a long gap happens, what's happening to people's feelings of connection. And we can look in the moments before the long gap through the long gap and the moments after the long gap. And we can look at things separately for strangers and friends. And for strangers, we see when a long gap occurs, their connection just plummets. Like that's not a good thing <laughs> in conversations between strangers. When a long gap happens, like that's a moment of disconnection. It's a moment of awkwardness. It's a moment where someone has dropped the ball and you have to figure out what to do with it. But for friends, we saw really the opposite effect. Long gaps were actually moments where connection was increasing and there wasn't this detrimental hit to connection in the same way that strangers felt. We think that the gaps between friends maybe aren't acting as gaps at all. Instead, they're these moments that allow people to savor and enjoy and reflect on the conversation. And it's just part of the rhythms of conversations between friends and friends have created relationships that allow for these varying rhythms to occur where strangers haven't yet. And so when they occur between strangers, it's a sign that some disconnection has happened and maybe things need to be adjusted somehow. It's so interesting that this gap sign in one context is a signal of, oh, this isn't going right. <laughs> and then in another context, it completely shifts. It's just interesting that we can have this same kind of measure that in one sense is a kind of, oh no, we're not connected. And it's just like means the complete opposite. That's kind of really interesting that can happen like that. Yes. And to be clear, short gaps for friends are good also. Okay. <laughs> um, so we can look mo for both friends and strangers, moments within the conversation where people are responding faster to each other or increases in connection for both of them. It's just that when you look specifically at these really long gaps for friends, they have these differing effects on connection. If you look at them like events in the conversation, they have different meanings for strangers and different meanings for friends. And I think it's going to be really interesting to dig into what they do mean for friends. We know that for strangers, it means, okay, something has gone wrong and we need to do something about it. But it's less clear what it means for friends. I think you could have many different types of long gaps. And it would be really interesting to look at why is the long gap there? And you can gain some insight by looking at what people were saying around the time of a long gap. So some long gaps might be caused by you asked me a difficult question and I need time to think about it. Or you just told me something really intense or you disclosed something really personal and I need to process it or think about how to respond. Or you 
said something super snarky. There are just many reasons why a long gap could exist. Or even we just notice something in the room together and we're looking at it. Like the, the long gap is there and they might be equally long, but the reason why they're there can be totally different. And I think that's going to be a really interesting avenue to go down to see, well, how do we characterize these different things? And maybe the different types of long gaps also have different um, impacts on connection as well. And maybe averaging across all of them, it looks like, oh, it's totally fine for friends, but maybe there are some where, whether you're a close friend or not, like if the long gap is the result of something, then maybe you still see this hit in connection as well. I see. So it could also be when you have a friendship, the content of your conversation changes. That means that there may be long gaps that you don't have with a stranger because you won't probably be talking about these things that ask for a long gap after. That could be one. Is that is that right? Exactly. The kinds of things that friends can talk about can get you in these more interesting and varied places where a long gap would feel totally at home. Strangers might not get to those places. So that could be one explanation for why that's happening. So I thought the discussion that you and Emma had about this question of the gap in conversations and the gap time was really interesting. And I also was thinking about this idea that you brought up, Beth, that what the gap means kind of depends on the type of conversation that you're having. And it made me think of these other studies that have been done on synchrony in conversations and in other types of cooperative tasks. And so synchrony could be synchrony, meaning like how much your brain waves are in sync. So if you're doing EEG on someone and you're measuring different types of waves, how much those waves are in sync between two people or between a classroom or something. And they've also done really cool studies looking at physiological synchrony, how much you're sweating in line with someone else, how much your heart is beating at the same time as someone else. And there's a lot of work showing that synchrony is good. If you're doing a cooperative task, there's some evidence that if you're doing this cooperative task with someone else, you're more likely to be successful if you're in sync, like your heartbeats are in sync or your skin conductance, so how much you're sweating is in sync with each other. But I went to this workshop once, and this is kind of where the, the difference in gap time that came to me. So I went to this workshop that was talking about how to figure out doing synchrony for your own studies. And one of the things that they were talking about was actually you have to be kind of careful with what's going on. If you're looking at synchrony, you have to really think through what that means. So especially they were talking about in a situation of conflict, like let's say that you're looking at conflict between spouses or between friends. If you're seeing a bunch of synchrony between people who are in conflict, then that's probably not a good thing because that means that when you're getting heated, I'm getting heated too. So we're escalating the situation, right? So when I was listening to this conversation between you and Emma about these differences in conversations and also this question of like maybe one person feels like the interaction is going really well, but the other person doesn't feel like it's going really well, that sometimes maybe you feel like there's synchrony happening, but then that synchrony shouldn't always be happening in every single case. And I was thinking in conversations, maybe there's times at which we would want this kind of shorter gap and to be in sync in that way, maybe one in strangers, right? If you're like, oh, I want to chat to you about surface level, small talk types of things. Like the weather's like this and you're going back and forth about that. But then maybe when you're closer friends and you have those longer gaps, maybe that's when you don't want there to be as much synchrony because maybe that's when you're trying to really learn something about the other person. Maybe someone's telling you their perspective on a situation, not even necessarily in a conflict. But if you're telling me your views on a certain subject and I don't know about that subject or I don't fully understand, then it would make sense that we're kind of out of sync. And also probably that I'm reflecting and we're having this longer gap time because I'm really trying to figure out what you're saying and where you're coming from, as opposed to just like being like da 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 and like the conversation happening really fast. So just say there's a situation where I'm really angry <laughs> and talking really fast and you're really calm and listening and trying to understand where I'm coming from. Even though we're not in sync at all, we could still feel really connected. I wonder if there's situations like that because that feels like you can feel very connected to someone when you are sharing things that someone's going through and you're not or, or something like that. So I, I feel like synchrony probably also doesn't just match up with how connected you're feeling to that person. Yeah, I think so. 
I think it was just this idea of these gap times and this quantitative marker of how well an interaction is going or how predictive this this type of marker like gap time could be of how connected people said that they were feeling or other people were saying that they were feeling. And I feel like synchrony is kind of one of those things that's like a really hot topic now where people are like, oh, synchrony is so important. But then actually you kind of have to really look at the specific situation because of a lot of the times if it's a deeper conversation and maybe especially when there's not only positive emotions, then maybe that's not what you would want. Also, just to say this is not saying that synchrony and gap times are the same at all. And none of these things that we're saying are verified whatsoever. But I think it'd be, if someone wants to run the study, I think it'd be interesting to look at synchrony and gap times. And it just seems like there's some stuff going on there that could be interesting overlap wise. Well, now to one of your other studies that looks at laughter in conversations. Can you explain the role of laughter in conversation? The lead author on this work is Adrian Wood, who's a professor at University of Virginia, and she's really an expert on laughter. So I've learned a lot from her. And a lot of her work from when she was in graduate school was making a parallel between existing work that showed there are different kinds of smiles that exist. And she found that similar to that, there's also different types of laughter. And she carves out these different types of laughter based on the different functions that they serve. So she says that there is laughter that signals reward, can signal affiliation, and can also signal dominance. And so when Adrian saw this round-robin data that I collected, she had this really cool idea to take that data and characterize the number of times that people laughed. So really simple metric. It's just within the 10-minute conversation, how many times did I laugh? How many times did you laugh? And what's nice about the round-robin setup is it allows you to use some cool statistical tools. So Adrian used this method called the social relations model, which is really built to use round-robin data, and it allows you to partition different variants in a data set. So it can allow you to tell apart an actor effect from a partner effect from a relationship effect. So in the context of laughter, an actor effect would be how much the tendency to laugh is an individual difference. So whether some people are more likely to laugh than others. So how much is the laughter because I'm just someone who laughs or I'm someone who doesn't laugh? And then the partner effect is how much is my laughter a product of how much my partner tends to make people laugh? So do some people make their partners laugh more than others? And then the relationship effect would capture the remaining variance, which would be how much of our laughter is attributable to the fact that I'm part of this conversation and you're part of this conversation, knowing my actor effect and knowing your partner effect. And I think how much people are laughing in a conversation could reasonably be attributed to either of these things. And so it was cool to use this method to figure out what explains the most variance in how much people were laughing. And so Adrian found that the majority of variance is actually attributable to the actor effect. So the finding really boils down to something quite simple, at least in this data set, that some people just laugh more than others. And it doesn't matter so much who you put me in a room with, my tendency to laugh is going to be my tendency to laugh. And I think what would be really cool is to use some of Adrian's earlier work about the types of functions that different laughter is serving and see if maybe we get this strong actor effect in terms of the frequency of laughter, but maybe there's something specific about the dyad that relates to the type of laughter that I'm using in that moment. And so I think that would be an interesting future direction there. And do you have any ideas or does anyone have any ideas why some people would laugh more than others? If this is a stable trait, would there be reasons to why that they would have that? It's a good question. And I think that following up and coding the laughter instances for the kind of a role that it's serving could be potentially useful. I'm bringing to mind people who like nervously laugh a lot, or if situations are a little bit awkward, will laugh as a way to deal with that. And again, being grounded in the kinds of conversations that we are analyzing, it's these 10 minute conversations between strangers. You can imagine things might get a little awkward and someone's way of dealing with that might just be nervously laughing. And so I think that could be one thing that's going on, but we would need to know the function that the laughter is serving to really get a sense of 
of why that might be. Because that's also for me a personal question because I laugh all the time. I don't think it's a nervous thing. I just really, I mean, I don't know, like to laugh. So I, when I was reading this, I was like, oh, I can maybe I can find out a bit about myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know the answer. I think it's great that you laugh a lot, and I'm sure that your conversation partners appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah, we'll have to ask Ava what she thinks. Okay, well, this has been so interesting. Would you be able to sum up what makes a good conversation? And is this something we can put effort in to change? Or is it just set in stone how we have a conversation if we'll click with other people or not? I wish I could answer what makes a good conversation because it would be very satisfying and I would have had a much more conclusive dissertation. But I think... I mean, conversation is super complex, and the answer to that question is going to be complex also. And there's likely going to be a few different answers, especially because we've been talking about really one or two very specific types of conversations, conversations between strangers and conversations between friends that have no explicit goals, and they're really just people trying to connect or get to know each other. And when you layer in the fact that there are many different types of conversations, and people are coming into them with different goals, I think it becomes clear what a really big question that is and how it's going to be this huge program of research that many different people are going to contribute to and try to understand. So I'm really excited to keep doing this work and trying to have more answers and better answers to what makes a good conversation. So you ask whether we can put effort into it to change or if it's just set in stone, whether we'll click with some people and not others. So I think it might be the case that we'll find that there might be some universally good things to do. Maybe that's the case. But I think a lot of this research is going to come down to finding someone whose conversation styles or tendencies or preferences or whatever, however you want to conceptualize it, match your own or are really compatible with your own. And I think we will click with some people and we won't click with others. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And really figuring out who are the kinds of people that I naturally click with, what might I need to do to connect with other people, why don't I click with some people? I think taking off some of the pressure about it being like, is there something wrong with me that I'm not clicking with this person? Like maybe you're just coming from very different places and it's not actually surprising that you're not clicking instantly. But I do think it's also possible to put effort in to ensure continued social connection with relationships that are particularly important to us. Even in our conversations between friends, people overall are reporting high connection with their friends. But even in their 10-minute conversation, you can see fluctuations in their continuous ratings where there are points in the conversations where they're feeling more connected and points where they're feeling less connected extending that beyond the 10 minutes, like there are going to be moments in that relationship that are going to feel less connected where you're feeling like you're not clicking in moments where you are. And I think, yeah, it must be possible to, we care about that relationship to put in work to increase connection when that feels important to us or to connect with people who we want to build a relationship with. And maybe we need to try different strategies and approaches to relate to someone where it's important for whatever reason, but it's just not coming super easily. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so interesting, so much to think about. But I don't want to think about it too much because I don't want to go into conversations being like, <laughs> don't have more than 200 millisecond pause because then that's stressful. <laughs> yes, yes. You're, you just gained a fantastic insight into the last like few years of my life. So, Ava, when you were listening to this I then when I was in the interview afterwards I was finding it very hard to then have a conversation because I was overthinking everything I was doing because these are things we don't think about at all and then I kept so I, I got out of the interview and I was speaking to people in my lab and I was so aware of these things and it was just I don't know it was just an interesting experience to realize so much goes into what we do every day with everyone we interact with that is kind of, you know, very precise and important, but we just have no, we don't, we have no awareness of it at all. I mean, I kind of feel like it's a bit like if you really think about how to walk, then it's 
then it you get freaked out. You know, it's one of those things where and, you know, they have studies about that where they have pro golfers come in and they'll try to have them bottom up, think about what they're doing and like narrate what they're doing and how they're doing the swing. And then it really messes them up because it's so top down, the process that's happening. It's so much just in their bodies and it's not something that they can really describe with words and it makes them worse. But then if you're a beginner, it actually helps to to really process those things. So maybe it's because you're so good at having conversations normally that it was messing you up. Because I was going to say in my kickboxing, which I've gotten really into and love, I have to like speak what I'm doing. I have no ability to to do it without being like cross, hook, switch. I can't. (laughs) Well, I think in like a year, you (laughs) will not want to say those things unless it's an integral part of what you're doing. But I think after I listened to the episode, I didn't feel that way because I am right now in Spain visiting my partner's family. So conversations in general are there's enough going on cognitively that the language switch, my gap times are definitely longer than they should be. So I I wasn't thinking about it that way. But I will say also like a cross-cultural thing is that I feel like it would be really interesting to look at this cross-culturally because, you know, I'm into my reality shows. I watch a lot of reality shows. I watch a lot of reality dating shows. And right now I'm watching a Korean reality show. Which one? Singles Inferno season three. It's so good. Vulture gave it a five stars for the first two episodes. And it was crazy, let me tell you. But I was watching it right after I listened to the episode. And one of the things that you really notice when you watch, especially like an American or British show versus the Korean shows, is that in the Korean shows, the gap times are so long especially at the beginning when they don't know each other in that situation where they're actually strangers. So kind of the situation that Emma was testing, right? But it is more of a group setting. But in those group settings, they will just like not speak to each other. It's silence and they're fine with it and no one's talking and they'll air it. That's what you see. They're just like, hi. Watching them in a group in silence. Well, because there are things happening, but they're nonverbal cues. Can you give some examples? Yeah, so... The setup of the show is that each single comes to the island and then walks to a little fire pit and then they sit down at the fire pit and then the next single comes and then they'll be like, hello. But that's basically the only interaction that they have. But then the nonverbal thing that's happening is where do they sit? Because they could sit right next to someone or they could sit on the other side. And then it's like, are they looking at each other? And then if someone does speak to someone else, that's like, whoa, like they're really interested. Or because there's also in, I think in a lot of the Asian reality shows, they have commentators. So like you watch someone else react to it as well. And if someone else speaks, they'll cut to the commentators being like, wow, she's so extroverted and crazy. Or like, wow, she must really be into that guy. So I feel like there's a lot happening in the unspoken, which I don't know if that can really be measured in the same way. But I think that the gap times are really different depending on culture probably and maybe like also depending on stages. Yeah, I was going to say I reckon that Australians would have longer gap times. Would you think that? Not based on you. but Not based on me, but I don't know. I would think Americans would be really short. I don't know. I think of the general stereotypic Australian as just really relaxed and just saying yeah and nah and just long gaps (laughs) yeah that's true i think this could be a case where looking at americans in conversation might be a really weird example literally weird example (laughs) of conversation yeah and i was talking to my partner about it and he's also quite introverted and i was telling him 200 milliseconds and he was like "Mm -mm." i was like no like that couldn't be me and i think also some like individual differences could come into it or I don't know if it's individual differences and or cultural differences, but if you're in a situation where you're with five people, let's say you're an Australian and you're with five Americans, they're just like pinging back and forth, like 200 millisecond gap, and you're not used to that, then that can really leave you behind in a conversation. Has that ever happened to you? I feel like you're I feel like I am a 200 millisecond gap kind of person. So other Australians are like, what? I think 
think, and Australian listeners, you can let me know, that you would consider me very highly strung. <laughs> oh, so you think it's a neuroticism thing? For me, in this culture. But that's, I think that's when I went to New York, I felt so at home because everyone was like me. So you don't think it's an extroverted thing, you think it's a neuroticism thing? Oh, God, that's hard. I don't know. It was a very anxious answer. So I'm not sure. But I know I have extroverted friends here who don't need to speak as fast and as uh, as I do. Okay. Okay. Well, we have lots of study ideas. Synchrony plus, is it extroversion or is it neuroticism? But I also love having conversations. I love having conversations with everyone. I love having conversations with strangers. I, ha- I hate being in places where I can't have conversations. Like where? where is that like alone in the bush oh okay i see i see i like it too whenever i engage in a conversation with someone i am glad that i did it but i do feel like i have a lot of dread sometimes going into social situations with like especially with people that i don't know as well you know going to someone's birthday party if like i know like one or two people there i'm like oh I don't know. But then usually it's enjoyable. And I mean, that's pretty backed up by science. And I know that, but I, I still dread it. But there are these studies where they had people randomly assigned to start a conversation with a stranger every day or just think a nice thought about a stranger. And people thought that other people wouldn't want to engage in the conversation with them. But like, what would you... Well, I feel like, Beth, you're very optimistic. But what would you guess that strangers would be willing to engage in a conversation with someone else? Like, what percentage of the time? Honestly, and I'm not being true, I think 100%. (laughs) Okay. The real answer from the study is 87%. People love to talk. And even if you go up to someone and they're shy and you're nice, they like that. That's true. You know? That's true. Well... This study also did one more thing, which was they measured how much of the time people exchanged information and like followed up and became friends. What percentage would you think that that happens? Because I would say that I think that's like 5%. I reckon 60%. 60%? You think 60% of the people that have a random conversation in the street follow up and become friends and exchange contact information? I think so. What's okay. the percent? 41, which I thought was crazy. 60%. I think people are open to that too. Yeah, but I also think a conversation with someone in the subway or in the grocery store, I feel like it's kind of nice if it's a fleeting conversation. It's a one-time thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the minute you have anything in common, then it's a friendship. You should know the kind of contacts I have in my phone. Okay, I think we have a, a sample that is biased <laughs> in this in this one collection. I'm pretty sure I'm at. Well, if we average, I'm. I feel like I'm at like five to ten percent. No, okay. probably closer to five. That makes sense. But anyway, if you're not like Beth, you still should go out <laughs> and talk to strangers. Apparently, it makes you feel better because I think the reason that. At least I feel like I dread these conversations is that it feels like an opportunity to fail because you're like, I'm going to be awkward and then this is going to go bad and I'm going to feel awkward and they're going to feel awkward. But most of the time, that's not what happens, not just for me, but scientifically. And so after people talk to strangers, they feel less awkward because it didn't go as bad as they thought and they become more confident and they enjoy the conversations more than they thought they would. And what's cool about this is that these studies actually find that this effect lasts. So it's not just if you talk to a stranger and then we survey you outside the grocery store after you talk to the clerk or whatever, that you feel better in that moment. It actually lasts like a full week later. And I don't know if they followed up past that, but it really is protective, even if it's not 200 millisecond gap times, probably. But that is why I struggled so much in the Netherlands. Okay, so I think my results there would be 0% of friends after conversations. <laughs> oh, follow-up, yeah. Oh, I, but that's why I struggled so much because the people working in the supermarket, everywhere I would go, I would try and tell them about my day and they just didn't want to hear. They just didn't. No. 
No. Or I remember the bike store. I wanted to tell the bike guy about my breakup and he could not care less. I think he was like, please leave me alone. Yeah. That gap time is forever. Or it's just you following up with yourself. No, but I really do think that conversation is really so cultural because it's so much the way that you're socialized to be, right? And if it's completely not a a thing to be talking to strangers, I think we thought that we could connect really easily because they speak English, but we're still making them speak a second language. Mm. So I think there's a certain level of like, I can't even be comfortable with you in the language that I want to communicate. Maybe if you spoke Dutch and you told them about your breakup, they would be like... The bike store man. Girl? Yeah, the bike store man would be like, oh my God, let me make you a tea. I thought the international flair made it more interesting, but I guess not. You can't win them all over, Beth. You're close. If you'd just like to finish with sharing about what you're excited about, what's coming up next for you. So a lot of the work that I've been doing in my PhD still is not out yet in publication form. So I'm really, really excited to get some new stuff out there. It's still using these naturalistic data sets that we collected. So I was focused a lot on these gaps in between turns. I've also been doing a lot of language analysis. So looking at the turns themselves. So what are the things that people are saying to each other? How do people build common ground? How do strangers talk to each other in a way that's really categorically different than how friends talk to each other? A lot of really fun things to do in language. I'm also really interested in soon moving from dyads, so two two people talking to each other, into groups. And I think a lot of the dynamics that exist in conversations between two people change in really interesting ways when there's even just a third a third person plopped into the room or even more. And so I'm really interested in how people navigate more than one mind and their own and try to make connection with multiple people at a time. I am really interested in seeing what other researchers do in this space. I think there's a lot of really exciting work going on right now, including what's going on in people's brains during interaction. So some work in the lab that I'm currently in and also others. It's going to be really exciting to see behaviorally what happens when people are talking to each other and also how that relates to how they're feeling in their bodies and in their brains and and connecting all of that together. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, she's the Australian one, and me, Ava Madasuza. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of Minds Matter. In the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on mindsmatterpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.